0: Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's get to it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We started our series through this beautiful letter in the New Testament last week, and we're still going to be in chapter 1 today. We covered the first five verses last week, and I think we're going to finish up chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. So as you're finding 1 Thessalonians, if you don't have a Bible, maybe you're uh, new to the faith or not yet a Christian just investigating Christianity, maybe you were invited by a friend and you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to use one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, please keep that Bible as our gift to you. Now we're going to have the scriptures up on the screen, but I think you would be well served to actually open up your Bible, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, and to read along with your own Bible. I think that's a great way to learn where passages are and to become more familiar with your Bible. If you're not used to looking up scriptures in the Bible, and you're just using that one in the rack in front of you, uh, you can find First Thessalonians on page 775 or 986, I think that is, depending on which copy. Same version, just two different copies. As you're finding that, let me mention to you two things. Number one, I'm really excited about next week. Okay, now I know you're going to be tempted to, it's 4th of July and half of you are in the military and you have a four-day weekend. Okay, you guys get a pass, I understand that. You, you guys may go do whatever. But if you are in town, don't be lazy on us now because next week the pastor that we worked with in Uganda, Pastor Raphael, is actually going to be, he's in the United States right now and he's going to be with us next Sunday. He's going to just take about 10 minutes in our service to greet the whole congregation and to tell you about the work in Uganda. And then we're having a lunch with Pastor Raphael right after service. So if you went to uh, Uganda last year, you were on the Uganda team, or if you were on the Uganda team this year... Or you just love the gospel and Uganda, you're welcome to come to this lunch. So, so it might get big, I don't know, but we would love for you to stay. Regardless, if you just have an interest, Pastor Raphael at lunch after church will be sharing more with us about the work in Uganda. You'll have an opportunity to get to know him. And I'm really excited about this brother, the work uh, of the gospel in, through his church King Jesus Church and the Busega School for the Deaf that we worked with. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to continue this partnership with Raphael and his family and the church and the school there for years to come. And I really want as many of you to be exposed to this dear brother and the work that he is leading there. You need to RSVP for that, though. And so I don't know if that's in the bulletin or not. Just email Nicole at Inside Crosspoint so we know how many, I mean, I don't know, pieces of chicken to order, I think is what we're having. This might up the ante a little bit. I think we're having fried chicken next Sunday afternoon, a little comfort food, southern comfort food. The next thing that I want to mention to you is that I'm sure you're aware uh, of the ruling that the Supreme Court uh, issued uh, at the end of this week, I guess it was uh, Friday, ruling essentially uh, legalizing same-sex marriage across the whole country, um, really overriding individual states decisions on this matter and I, I want to speak very briefly about this and we 're not going to make this the topic of today uh, in our at our one another meeting on july twelfth we 're going to spend a little bit of time talking more, more thoroughly about it. but uh, I want to address uh, first of all, I want to state that if you 're newer to cross points uh, or, or maybe this is even your first time here. I want you to know that where we stand as a church on on this particular issue is is I think this decision by the Supreme Court is, is is a severe mistake. And I think that it is going to be very bad for our country and bad for people because we believe that the scriptures are very clear that human sexuality should be expressed between and only between a man and a woman in the one flesh union of marriage. And so this applies to all human sexuality. It applies obviously to same-sex attraction, same-sex uh, sexual activity. It applies to the heterosexual who may be in this room right now, who is outside of God's plan for human sexuality and is, is engaging in premarital sex and thinking that you're somehow better, uh, that that is not the case. The only legitimate expression of human sexuality is between a man and a woman in Marriage ordained by God. Clearly, uh, our Supreme Court ruled the other way, and why we think this is bad is not because it's a political statement or because we're conservative ideologically, but because we think it is terrible to endorse people in abhorrent behavior that God says that if you continue in, will cause you to be separated from Him for eternity, regardless of whether it's homosexual activity or. Or heterosexual activity outside of marriage, so we think it is bad because it puts people at odds with their Creator. So we clearly disagree with this decision. Having said that, I want to address three I think groups that may be in this room. Okay, one I want to address uh, people that maybe are you know kind of the right wing crew. You know, you kind of Fox News is sort of like your go-to channel. Um, and, you know, Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh are kind of always playing the background of your mind. I think you may be, uh, you may be vulnerable to anger and panic. I want to say to you that, that the gospel does not need a, a host culture that agrees with it to thrive. And I, I want you to put down your sword and to not forget about the fact that the Bible tells us that God is completely sovereign and works all things together for His glory. And that certainly means everything, including even this decision. So somehow, God is at work for the glory of His name, and for the good of His people. The second group of people that, that may be in this room would be kind of indifferent Christians. Like you're trusting in Christ, but you kind of don't realize what all the hullabaloo is about I would encourage you to, to, to really check yourself and get engaged in what the Christ life is in the scriptures and that to be indifferent about something that will cause people to be separated from God for eternity is a type of casual Christianity that the Bible knows nothing of. So if you grew up, and you're a young person, and you grew up watching The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and you're just sarcastic about everything, you have not been well-served. And you need to understand the radical call to discipleship that the Bible calls us to. And you need to check in and you need to be able to have a biblical understanding of human sexuality and marriage so that you can be a winsome but yet bold witness to your culture. Being indifferent and not understanding why this is a big issue is not an option for a biblical Christian. And then thirdly, there certainly may be people in this room who agree with the Supreme Court decision and disagree with everything that I have just said. And I want you to know that as a pastor, we as a pastoral staff, want to kindly, warmly, and winsomely engage you. We don't want to just cast you off. We want to sit down with you and open up the Bible. A couple years ago, I preached a message called the Gospel and Homosexuality. And we went through the Old Testament text and the New Testament text and showed why this behavior is outside of God's Bounds and is not good for human flourishing. And we as heterosexuals, friends, have lied to the culture because we have, we have elevated sex above what it really is. Friends, we have traded in a biblical definition of marriage for our own sort of selfish ambitions. And so I want you to know if you disagree with me and this church and the pastors of this church, uh, and you're, you're wanting to talk about that, Uh, I certainly want to engage in in a conversation with you. I'm part of a small network of pastors that got together for a conference call Friday afternoon to discuss this. And one of the pastors wrote out some thoughts. And I want to read some things that he wrote that I think are very helpful. Just a short little few sentences. He said, Our nation has now defined us at best outside the mainstream of American opinion, meaning us as Bible-believing Christians. This is nothing new. Christianity has always been countercultural. Friends, we believe something far more radical than that: that uh, marriage should be between a man and a woman. We believe that a dead man got up from the grave and now rules and reigns over the universe. Right? That—that that is, no, no, that is far more freakish than marriage between a man and a woman alone. Right? He goes on to say, This is a new experience for us, yes, but we are simply joining the experience of our brothers and sisters throughout history and around the world. Indeed, as they have learned, the Lord has his purposes even in that. Light is never more conspicuous and inviting than when it it shines in the deepest darkness. We do not know what this pretends for religious liberty. Certainly, we pray for continued religious liberty in America, but we must remember that the gospel does not need religious liberty. And in fact, it has often not had it throughout history. And yet, Jesus promises the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations. And he says in Matthew 16, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, I could actually spend some time today talking about how I think this may work for the good of the church in America because it will burn off cultural Christianity. There will be no such thing as a sort of wishy-washy, seeker-sensitive middle ground. And do not be surprised, friends. I'm getting going. I'm sorry. I didn't want to do this. (laughs) Do not listen to me. This is just a pastoral word for you. Do not be surprised when some of the major, well-known, book-writing pastors that you thought were solid... Cave on this issue. Yeah. Don't be surprised, but let's let's hunker down, and let's be winsome and joyful, and let's be biblical optimists because the Bible tells us, Jesus has told us that upon this rock He will build this church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is a wonderful article that Russ Moore, Doctor Russell Moore, who is the president of the uh, uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It's an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. He has written an article. I printed off about 100 copies. They're just free. Take them um, in. They're in the Resource Center. It's the, the title of the article is, Why the Church Should Neither Cave Nor Panic About the Decision on Gay Marriage. We'd love for you to take that, read more deeply about that. If we're all out by the time you get there, we'll post it on our website. Um, but friends, uh, let's be encouraged. God is sovereign, and He has His good and wise purposes. And and, and let's not quibble with God's sovereignty. You know what Acts 17 says? It says that we, God knew when we would be born and he appointed the boundaries. So let's not, let's not hearken back to a day that has maybe doesn't, has gone by and never existed. Let's rejoice that God has made us alive in this time for this purpose, to be God's people, to call people to life in Christ. Well, with that, let's pray and let's get into our text in 1 Thessalonians. Father, as we uh, think about this decision and as we think about uh, our nation, uh, certainly our hearts uh, do break for uh, people that this will cause pain to, even as they think it is liberating them. And we pray that you would help us to be wise and winsome and courageous and bold And compassionate and compelling and Christ-like. I pray that as the gospel writer John writes about Jesus in his first chapter, that we would be full of grace and truth, that we would have both of those, that beautiful combination of excellencies, and that the world would see that, and that you would you would even use this evil as we went through Genesis as a church, that you would use this evil and turn it around for good. As we turn our attention now to your text, we thank you for your word. We we are so humbled that we can open it and read it and proclaim it. And we pray that you would show us wonderful things from your word. I pray that Christians in this room would be convicted and encouraged, wounded and healed through your word. And I pray that any of our friends that are here this morning who are not yet trusting in Christ, that by your sovereign and kind and gracious mercy, you would cause them to pass from death to life as they see the beautiful Christ, the risen King. Help us now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's read First Thessalonians chapter 1 again, and we're going to zero in on verses 6 through 10, but I'm going to read the whole thing again just to reorient us to where we are, and here's the, here's the thing I want us to see today. This, these verses that we're going to cover in 6 through 10 are kind of like a, a puzzle that, you know, when you're putting together a puzzle with, with kids maybe, uh, and you, you put the little box that has a picture uh, of the of the puzzle pieces so you can kind of look at the one piece and kind of see where it goes, this, this, these verses that we're going to cover today are, are, are kind of like the picture on the box that you buy with the puzzle of what it looks like to, to be converted, to truly follow Jesus, to be a, a true disciple. And these pieces of the puzzle that we're going to, Lord willing, put together, we're, we're just going to continue to stare at this beautiful picture that Paul gives of conversion. John Stott, who is a bridge, well, he passed away a few years ago another British theologian that I love, very understated man, very humble, doesn't overspeak things very often. He says that these verses that we're going to zero in on today are the fullest account of conversion in the whole New Testament. Now for an understated conservative Brit who doesn't get excited about anything, actually he's dead so he's in heaven now so he's really excited because he's in the presence of Jesus, but for a guy like John Stott to say that, that's significant. So let's read verses 1 through 10 and we'll settle on verses 6 through 10. I want us to see. We're going to look at two connections to true discipleship and then three actions of two true discipleship. We'll have that all up on the screen. Two connections to true discipleship and then three actions of true discipleship. Verse 1 Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. And we know, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, so two connections of true discipleship and then three actions of a true disciple. First, I want us to see the two connections. The first connection that I, I want you to see here in verse 6 is that true discipleship leads to joy. Let me read verse 6 again. Paul says that you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so let's back up and remind ourselves about the setting of this letter and how Paul planted this church in Thessalonica. In Acts chapter 17 last week, we read the account of how Paul stopped in Thessalonica with Silas. He's called Silvanus in this, at the beginning of Thessalonians, with Silas and Timothy. And they were only there for about three weeks, three Sabbaths they preached. And Paul laid down as much teaching as he could, teaching them day and night there in the temple. But there arose persecution from the Jews who had not converted to Christianity, who had not trusted in Messiah, and they began to persecute uh, the Christians there, the the Jews that were turning to Christ, and also the Greeks that were turning to Christ, and they began to persecute uh, Paul and this new church, and so it caused Paul to have to flee, and now what has happened is Paul has now fled Thessalonica, gone on to Corinth, and it's probably six months or so later, and he has, he's worried about the church in Thessalonica because he didn't have a long time to spend with them and only was able to teach them for only about a month. And so he sends Timothy, who was with him when he planted the church, to go check on them. And Timothy now has reported back to Paul. And he's, he's given him an encouraging report of what's going on in Thessalonica. But he's also told him that this young church is still facing persecution uh, from the people that are, are, especially the Jews, that did not trust in Christ. And so Paul is concerned about them. And that's the affliction that they are facing. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying... You are, you're actually imitating us. So six months ago when we were with you, or whenever it was, we endured persecution for the sake of the gospel. We endured affliction because we are imitators of the Lord. And now you are as well. But notice what Paul says there. He says that they did this with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to see this link between discipleship and and joy. And in fact, I don't really even know what the word is. It's not just that true discipleship leads to joy, but it's rooted in joy. It's grounded in joy. It's fueled by joy. I want us to see this. Paul is telling them that their, their pursuit of Christ should be fueled and is fueled with this joy of the Holy Spirit, despite the fact that they were enduring affliction and persecution. So before we look at that link, let's just pause here and just ask ourselves, what is discipleship? I think at its most basic level, discipleship is when one Christian helps another Christian follow Jesus better. I think that's just a very simple and basic form of discipleship. When one Christian helps another Christian follow Jesus better. Of course, it's based on the Word of God Paul taught them good doctrine while he was just there for a few weeks. But it's more than just information, uh, transfer, the, the, the giving of information, the transferring of information. It's this life in action that Paul modeled that they saw that they were able to imitate. So here's a question for us as we even just think about discipleship is, are we as Christians living lives that are worth imitating? Are we living lives that are worth imitating? This, uh, discipleship is the church-wide responsibility of everybody who's been a Christian for more than seven seconds. And Paul is saying here that you imitated us as we were following Christ. I think we have this notion that in order to be somebody that disciples somebody else, you have to be a super Christian who knows your Bible backwards to forwards. Although those things are wonderful, and let's have a church full of those types of people, that is not a prerequisite for discipleship. It is just helping somebody else that you know is a Christian to help them in some way follow Christ. Sharing with them, serving them, modeling Christ to them. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. It just means that we hold up Christ and encourage one another. And I pray, and I think one of the things that I think is beautiful about this church is that it is marked by people who don't wait to be linked up, who just have their heads on a swivel, who care for other people, who aren't waiting on the pastors or elders to do everything. I I can even, I'm just looking at men and women right now that I know are just taking the initiative and meeting with people, right? And isn't, aren't there cultural and generational gaps? I mean, come on, don't old people and young people have different tastes and stuff like that? And it's awkward. And, you know, you like the Gaithers and they like these weird bands and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, kind of sometimes it's weird. And like I made that comment that I know kind of ruffled some feathers. You want to to go to the buffet at Piccadilly's or Morrison's Cafe, and they want to go to, you know, Starbucks or whatever. You can, you can bridge those barriers and, and get down to what is really matters, which is following Christ in a hostile world. I could go on on that, but, but, but I want us to see the link here between discipleship and joy. It's significant that Paul uses the word joy to describe the attitude and way in which they imitated Paul. It wasn't, listen, listen, Bible Belt, VBS attending, Awana-saturated Christian kid who grew up in the Bible Belt in the South. Listen to this. It wasn't out of begrudging acceptance or teeth-gritting duty that they followed Paul. It was with the joy of the Holy Spirit we need to see this connection in order to pursue obedience biblically. Christ does not call us to a sort of Ned Flanders, joyless Christianity. Do you know who Ned Flanders is? If you don't, I'm glad you don't, because he was a, he was a character on a terrible, ridiculous TV show that you shouldn't have been watching anyway. But he was a terrible example of what Christianity is. Kind of like this, 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 just this nerdy, geek guy who was just sort of out of step. Well, we should be out of step with culture, no doubt, but it portrayed the Christ's life as joyless. And, and that is just not the truth. Listen, listen to these two examples, Hebrew, both from Hebrews. Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12, Moses first, then Jesus. We'll have it up on the screen. Don't turn there. Just listen to this. These beautiful examples. Hebrews 11 verses 24, 25, and 26. Listen to how Moses pursued God. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I love that verse because the Bible is honest that sin does have a fleeting pleasure to it, right? But it's fleeting, It's like an apple that looks good from the outside, but when you bite into it, it's full of worms. And it never satisfies. It never delivers on its faulty promise. Verse 26, listen to this. Here's the key. Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So notice how Moses, by the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament before Jesus, was viewing what it meant to follow God, that there was more joy in forsaking the passing pleasures of this world and trusting in Christ, even though it meant being afflicted and mistreated and bearing the reproach of Christ, there was more joy in saying no to this broken world and yes to Jesus than there was in giving in to these counterfeit pleasures. Do you see that? And let's not rely on Moses' example. Let's rely on Christ. Hebrews just one chapter over. Hebrews 12. Listen to this reasoning. The writer says, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and by the way, I love that. This isn't the point But I'm just taking a little rabbit trail right now. When I read stuff like that, I'm encouraged, right? Especially because I I am a fragile, weak, emotionally sensitive American in 2015. And when stuff like this happens in our culture, I tend to freak out and act like, oh, what's happening? The sky is falling. But there's a great cloud of witnesses. Martin Luther's up in heaven saying, Put some steel in your spine, boy. It's been a whole lot worse in the history of the church. Some of you didn't get that, but I. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run this race with endurance? By gritting our teeth, by being good little boys and girls, because that's what, you know, the little church culture that we grew up in that was just kind of, you know, you don't want to go to hell, do you, Johnny? So be good. No, that's not the model. It says to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So so what's going on there? You see this? Jesus is pursuing the greater reward of purchasing a people for the glory of his name and for the Father, and he is enduring hardship in this moment by pursuing the greater joy. So that means don't miss us. don't miss this young guy don't miss this young soldier at Fort Benning who is racked with lust and sexual temptation there is something better than giving into that temporary pleasure there is more joy in obeying God and never touching a woman for as long as you live than disobeying God and living sinfully in that guilty terrible place you've got to believe that You've got to believe that Christ is not calling you to a joyless obedience. He is calling you to pursue a greater joy. And these Thessalonians saw that, right? No matter what, it wasn't based on their comfort. It wasn't based on anything that God could give them in the moment. They had joy in the Holy Spirit because they saw the greater reward ahead. Oh, friends, I believe that is, that is absolutely a, a, a key to discipleship in every age for every Christian. Just one quick application, friends, this, is, this just shows us that, di- friends, don't live, it, it, don't construct a, a Christian, uh, a false reality that Jesus is, the, is is merely the means to some sort of end, right? He's not the means to the end. He is the end. He is the reward. So how do we do this, right? I mean, come on, we, we tend to think of like the prosperity gospel, like we, 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 We all the time bash on these, you know, just these charlatans on TBN and don't watch that junk. Like if you're caught up in that stuff, don't watch that junk. It's garbage. But I mean, that's just glaring examples, right? So into my ministry and God will open up the windows of heaven and bless you and all this goofy stuff and they're just robbing money from old people who are too naive to understand, right? We just look at that and we're disgusted and we bash against the prosperity gospel because we're Bible people, right? We believe the Bible, but aren't we like, we're prone to that stuff too in a more subtle way. Like we think, oh, you know, if I, if I kind of get my life right, you know, I've had all these terrible relationships. I need to find somebody that really, you know, loves and is trusting in God. And so I'm going to get more serious about Christ and I'm going to get involved in the church so I can meet somebody. Right now, is church a wonderful place to meet somebody and get married? Yes, I recommend it. I did it myself 22 years ago. But do you see how subtle that can be? Like you're treating living for Christ as the means to get what you really want, which is this, this, this thing that's really going to bring you joy, which is a relationship or this or that or whatever, right? And, and that Jesus can't be seen that way. He, he won't allow himself to be the means to your reward because he is the true and only great reward. Do you see that? It's like in Matthew 13, there's this beautiful parable, these two parables of the kingdom. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Friends, do we feel, do we see Jesus in that way? He is the pearl of great price. He is worth selling everything. He's not the means to the end, He is the end. You've got to see that. We're saying it this morning Jesus is better. So true discipleship leads to joy. And by the way, I am preaching a whole lot better than you guys are letting on. I'll just tell you that right now. I don't know. I'm feeling it. I don't know if you are. I just had to get that out there. Loosen up a little bit, boys and girls. I've been in Uganda, man. I, mean, I told you last week, they get into it. Like, I, Anyway. So true discipleship leads to joy. And I want you to see this other connection, that true discipleship leads to evangelism. It leads to witness. It leads to a display of the surpassing worth of Christ. Let me read verses 7 and 8 again. Okay, so he says, You became imitators of us, in verse 6, in the joy of the Holy Spirit, despite this affliction, verse 7, so that, right? Children of the 70s who grew up watching Schoolhouse Rock Sing it with me. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? So that he did this in you, he produced this joy in you so that you could follow Christ no matter what this world is giving, not so that it could rest in you as a cul de sac. And it wouldn't go anywhere, but this, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of, uh, of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Friends, I, I want us to see this, that their discipleship produced witness and evangelism. We've talked about this before, but oftentimes, I think unwittingly and unwisely, we pit discipleship and evangelism against one another in the Christian life and in the church, right? You've heard this, I think it's a false dichotomy. Sometimes you'll hear people say like, well, that church is really good at discipleship, but they're not really good at reaching out in evangelism, right? Or maybe they'll say about a church, hey, they're really good at evangelism, kind of getting people in, but once they get in, they're not really good at discipleship and they, you know, they, don't, they can't really grow people. I think that's a false dichotomy. Where, where true discipleship exists, it's going to give way to, to real evangelism. And where real evangelism exists in a group of people, it's going to give way to true discipleship. To, to not be good at one or the other means that you're not really good at either. And, and, and Paul is saying here that their life, the way these group of people lived together, the way, and we'll read about it in a second, the way they turned from idols, the way there was a radical break between them and the world, became, in fact, the word here that we have translated in our English Bible as sounded forth comes from a Greek word that we get the word echo from. It echoed, it reverberated in the canyons there. It echoed forth and it produced a witness of the gospel and notice that it was a, a collective effort, a collective responsibility. Friends, we talk about this all the time. I want us to see as a church, oh gosh, this is so beautiful. The, the, just the way we do life together as a church, the way we treat one another, the way we speak about uh, our, our, our fellow members of our church in our workplaces, the way we prioritize life together, not to the exclusion of the world, but so that the world would see this countercultural family caring for one another. Friends, that becomes a beautiful aroma to an on-looking world. Friends, you know this. I'm not going to do my Mexican food thing again. You know I grew up on the Mexican border, right? In the land of real Mexican food. And I mean, when we start, when we just drive into my hometown, and when we're on the outskirts, it's like I just have this, like this six, like this, like this dog German Shepherd nose. I can just smell the tortillas baking in the air, right? And it just makes me want to come to my favorite Mexican food place. And it's like an aroma that just draws me in. That's the way the life of a local church should be. It should be an aroma that. That causes those whom God is saving to come and have life. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, through us collectively, the local church, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of of Christ to God. So this aroma is it just kind of kumbaya kind of whatever just sort of happy happy love love give everybody a hug pass out you know dandelions and give free puppies. No, listen to this. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. In other words, it's going to be offensive to people who are dying in their sins and are giving themselves over to their passions, of their lusts. But to those whom God is saving, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Friends, It means that a church that decides to radically pursue Christ despite a hostile world around them will be a sweet aroma to a world that God is drawing to himself. Burning flesh, which is what really the the, the true discipleship is, just burning our flesh, burning flesh, spiritually speaking, smells strangely attractive to those whom God is drawing to life. May we be a church who doesn't pit discipleship and evangelism together, but would, would we be an echo along with all the other Bible believers? Let's not, act, let's not get this sort of singular mentality either and act like we're the only ones doing this here. There are great, there are great churches all across our city, right, that are, that are, that are, that are striving to do the same thing. We, we are part of the great body of Christ in our city. Let us be that type of church. And just to, before we move on and end with three actions of a disciple, let me just speak a word to any unbelievers present who may have seen bad examples of Christianity or maybe you're not a Christian today because you were in a really difficult church that didn't model this well. And now, like, you're, you're wounded and you're keeping everybody at arm's length. And in fact, you were here, you were just drugged by somebody here today and you can't wait for me to shut up so you can get out of here. Look, I, I want to say to you, uh, friend, that my heart goes out to you. I'm sorry that you had that bad experience. Can I just push on you a little bit and say, there's coming a day when you will stand before the creator of the universe, your maker. Don't let the one thing that drove you from God be somebody else's jacked up sanctification. Right? Don't let your whole life, don't let your eternal destiny be defined. Don't be like, can I, can I, Can I say something kind of hard but loving? Don't be so fragile that you let you connecting with the God of the universe be sidetracked by some knucklehead 10 years ago who didn't understand what it truly meant to be a Christian. Don't let that impede you, man. Come on, you got more grit than that. Jump over that obstacle, get around it right now. And if if the Holy Spirit right now is causing you to see these things, I believe that means that the Holy Spirit is putting some steel in your spine to press through that junk, to press through the hypocrisy. Guess what? We're all hypocrites. You're a hypocrite too, right? Join the human race, right? And don't let that push you from your creator. Come on, come on, let's push through that. And, and I love you. I do. <laughs> All right. So let's keep going. Let's end this by looking at three actions of true discipleship. Verses 9 and 10. And this is what Stott, that uh, dear British theologian who's gone on to be with the Lord a few years ago, John Stott, pastored in England for many, many years. Has written many, many commentaries. Wrote a book called Basic Christianity, which is a classic. John Stott, I believe he wrote also uh, The Cross of Christ, which is uh, a classic book, which you should read. He said that these verses that we'll read here are the fullest account of conversion in the New Testament. So verses 9 and 10. Again, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God. From idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Three actions of true discipleship. What it truly means to trust in Christ, to be converted, that I want us to see, and then we'll end. First is, is that we are to turn to God from idols to turn to God from idols. This word turn is so important. It means you are going in one direction and you stop and turn and start going in another. Contrast this, friends, with the way the Christian life is presented so often in our culture. It is presented often as, it's like an upgrade in your operating system. Come to Jesus, and it will be life 2.0. It's been kind of mediocre for you up to this point. Add Jesus, the final ingredient, and things will get better. Friends, that is not the biblical view of conversion and discipleship. Paul is commending these Thessalonians, and this applies to every Christian in every age to turn to God from idols. And friends, we all have idols to turn from. So don't, when I say idols, don't think of a little gold statue of a fat guy, right? Think of things that, that if we didn't have, we couldn't have any true joy. It would wreck our life. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City that I have a lot of respect for, very deep thinker. I think he thinks through culture very wisely. He has a, a little book called Counterfeit Gods. I believe we sell in the Resource Center. And he has a quote here about, about these idols, these counterfeit gods. Let me, let me read this. A counterfeit god is anything so central and essential. And when he says counterfeit god, think, think idol. A counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. And by the way, he wrote this book, I think before Facebook just like went crazy. And you you know, I mean, come on, are we not gripped by how we appear in social media? I mean, Look, since I've been talking, some of you probably posted something earlier this morning, and you've been glancing down, not paying attention to the Word of God, seeing if anybody liked what you said. I mean, is that not an indicator that you are driven by whether or not anybody notices you? I mean, come on. Did, I mean, it's getting uncomfortable. I understand. All right, I'll keep going. I don't... It can be a romantic relationship, pure approval, competence or skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or brains, a great political or social cause, your morality or virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. Uh, Again, friends, this is not Brad saying, boys and girls, I've arrived. If you would just understand this, you could be good Christians. I see this in my life, right? I see this in my life. I guess, I, know, I was about to say, back when we started Crosspoint, I was, no, I'm not, I'm not past this. Like, I'm still vulnerable to this. Like, I still, Sunday after Sunday, I think, like, is, is, is anybody going to show up today? Did I say anything last week that, you know, wrecked the church? And that's like this idol that I constantly have to die to. And I, you know what? I confess it to you. Because the best way to burn up your idols is to put them out in the light where they can't thrive. Oh, friends, I could go longer on that one, but it would be personally therapeutic and you don't need it because you're not driven by the fragile emotional state that I am. When your meeting in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. Listen to this. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. What what is that thing for you? What are you prone to? There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. And Paul says that all of these false idols in our lives, whatever they are, they can be a ranger tab or a spouse. It can be a job, or it can be physical fitness. None of those things are necessarily bad in, and of themselves, in themselves. But when they grip our hearts, they become idols. And Paul says we must turn from finding our satisfaction in those things and turn towards God. Secondly, after turning to God from idols, we turn to serve the living and true God. Oh, we could spend much more time on this, but we won't. Notice that the turning is turning away from idols to God, but then it's not a passive sitting. Then it's getting about serving God, which is joy, giving ourselves away for others. I think one one weakness of the American church is that we are so resource-driven as we have people running off, consuming resources, and often we don't, we don't think about how we might Serve. We might stop receiving, but we might serve. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. That means that every person in this room who has been born again, converted by God, made alive, regenerated, you have spiritual gifts that God has intended for you to use to help other people follow Jesus and to help the church collectively sound forth the gospel. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Have you had a conversation with a more mature Christian who's observed your life, who can give you encouragement and wisdom, right? Do you know what they are? It should be your duty and mission to think about ways that God has gifted you so that you might give yourself a way to serve the living and true God. And then finally, the third action of true discipleship, and we end with this, is that we are to, I love this, to wait for the return of the risen king. Verse 10 says that we should wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we're turning to God from idols. We're getting busy serving God in our remaining years on this earth but we also have this posture where we are waiting because this world, this life, these 80 or 90 years will never fully satisfy us. We weren't meant to be complete in this life. There is a waiting, there's a posture, there's a patience that should, that should grip every Christian. That we will wait for the return, listen to this, of the man who came back from the dead. Look, look, we said it at the beginning. That's far crazier, far more offensive, far more countercultural than any stance on marriage, right? We believe that God created everything and, in his sovereign, mysterious providence, allowed that creation and the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, to fall and rebel against him and then to rectify that situation, became a man, the second person of the Trinity. God Himself became a man. The Creator became a man and then allowed that creation to crucify Him and put Him on a cross and die so that He could bear the wrath of the Father that should have been ours. This is what it means to be a Christian. Listen carefully. That God the Son became a man, bore the wrath of His people, that He bore the wrath of the Father for His people, died, gave up His life, and then rose again, resurrected from the grave, ascended to heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God where he executes his reign and rule and where he promises that he shall return. And at that time, he will finally and fully restore his people and all sin, all evil, all consequences will be vanquished finally and fully forever. Friends, that is reality, and that is who we're waiting for. That is who we worship. This is not, Christianity is not at its core a moral ethic or way to do life or a governmental culture or a, a societal norm. It is the countercultural, freakish message of the cross that is foolish to this world, that God became man, died and rose again and for his sovereign purposes is now waiting to come back and will come back one day and right every wrong, fill every valley, level every jagged mountaintop and redeem his people and call them into eternal joy which will be far better than anything that these 80 years can offer forever and ever and ever ever. Yeah. Friends, do you, do you see that? Like when you see that, friends, you, you can endure a thousand and one things in this life. You know, if you're a parent, you, you know, and you've taken a kid on a, on a trip, kids on a road trip, and you're going to Atlanta to go to the zoo or whatever. You're going to the beach, and you're not, I mean, you're not even at Dothan yet. And they're saying, how many more minutes till we get there? That'll drive you nuts. When are we going to be there? Another four hours. Pipe <laughs> it. When I, I grew up in a little city called El Centro, California. It's at the very bottom of California and the very middle of California. It is where nowhere empties into nothing. That's where I grew up. <laughs> Out in the middle of the desert. Nothing there except tumbleweeds and coyotes and a big, long fence. And on the other side of that is this crazy little place we like to call Mexico. I don't know why whoever was pioneering the West decided in the middle of the desert, when it's 120 degrees out, to stop and say, this looks like a good place to establish a city. But they did. That's where I grew up. It is two hours from San Diego, which is one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. And we would get in my car every summer... My parents would drive my brother and I, old station wagon with the wood panels, you know. Dad wouldn't turn on the air conditioner. I don't know why. It cost me 120 degrees out in the summertime. We're driving through the desert. We're dying. Dad, how many more minutes till we get there? Shut up, son. We'll be there in a minute. And there's this place after about an hour and a half. My kids know it. We've driven this drive with our kids. There's a place about an hour and a half when you go through this just nothing, horrible, ugly desert where you get over these little mountains that are inland of San Diego and you get to the top of the ridge there. And on a clear day, man, you can can see the Pacific Ocean and it starts, everything that is dry and brown starts to turn green and lush. And the desert valley gives way to the beautiful coastland of San Diego. And you can see the beautiful pacific ocean on a clear day and as you get closer you can see you can see jack murphy stadium the home of the san diego chargers man oh i love that place and if you keep going you can see the little this little this little tower and SeaWorld, man because we always went to SeaWorld and we're going to go eat in that restaurant go up to the top and we're going to get splashed by the whale it's going to be awesome summer is here we're going to spend a couple weeks in san diego right But man, we had to go through the desert to get to that beautiful place. And friends, that's what Paul is telling us here, man. We're walking through this desert. And maybe what's happening in America right now is God is showing us that these 80 years weren't meant to be paradise, right? And he is weaning us from this world so that he can finally woo us to heaven and we're traveling through the desert and God is arranging everything according to his sovereign providence telling his people to turn from idols you weren't made for this desert keep looking ahead wait for my son who's coming the one who rose again who delivers you from the wrath to come and there's going to come a moment where you're going to crest that mountain and you're going to see it and when you can see it man it puts steel in your spine and you know that it will all friends listen to me listen to me it will all Be worth it on that day. Let's long for that day. Let's wait for that day. Let's lean forward into that day and let's be a type of church that sounds forth that, that that day is coming and it will be a day of beautiful, ever increasing joy for those and only for those who are trusting in Christ. So, as we end, friends, is that your hope? dear christian brother or sister oh, let that let that be your hope if you're not trusting in christ i just i can't convince you i can't i don't have words of eloquence i, I don't know how else to say it other than i just plead that you can see that like you can see there's wrath that's coming and it's barreling down on your head if you're outside of christ and you you don't have to understand it all you, in fact that's why it's called faith because it's not by sight, it's by faith, but you, can you see him, can you see the God-man, Christ Jesus, who died and rose again, and who now calls you to trust in him, can you see that joy that lies ahead, and can you see that it's better than anything, that this broken world, it's better than any relationship, it's better than any counterfeit God, it's better than any idol, and I plead with you right now, you don't need me to coach you, you don't need to repeat anything, you need to turn, like what Paul says, you need to turn from trusting, in yourself, trusting in sin, trusting in any faulty, counterfeit God, and you need to look to Jesus and love Him and have faith that He alone is worthy of your worship. Do that now. Like, do that now, I pray. Let's pray together. Father, help us now respond to these beautiful words. I pray that you would fill this room with a passion for true discipleship, and that this church would be marked by this type of humble, bold, gritty, raw, joy-filled discipleship. Make this more true in my life, God. I confess my idols. I'm, I'm, I'm still often racked with, with idols that really should have been gone a long time ago in my life, and I, I pray that you would make. Jesus so much more beautiful than these counterfeit joys and that I would pursue Christ with joy because he's better we sang it he's better Jesus is better and father for my friends in this room who who came in not trusting in Christ God would you would you right now would you give them eyes to see and a heart to believe so they can turn they can turn from where their false hope was and they can look and confess and believe in you and friends if that is you do not leave this room, do not leave this room this morning. If you feel like you are understanding who God is and what you must do to be right with him, do not leave this room this morning before you talk to somebody, whether it's a pastor or somebody that you just know to be a Christian, and tell them that you believe that you are trusting in Christ right now for the first time. Don't leave this room because we need need to get connected to other believers to help you follow Jesus. Father, would you do that? Would you give new hearts? Would you give ears? Would you open up ears? Would you cause scales to fall from eyes? And would people in this room see you for the first time this morning as we worship you? I pray that you do this for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.